All right. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter. Chapter 3. And if you follow along as I read, starting in verse 8. Peter writes, and the Lord is speaking. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father, we, we humble ourselves this morning before your written word, before your voice as we read these words. We, we, we submit ourselves to your authority and to your truth. And Lord, we ask that through the working of your Spirit, you would help us all to be attentive to what you are saying. And may these words be transforming words for everyone here. May they be words of life. May they be fresh hope. May they be words of sanctification. May they be words of grace that we might bring glory to your name as we walk in this world until the day we meet you face to face. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In just a few weeks, as Devin recently shared, We will once again celebrate the advent of Christ, his incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus taking on the frailty of our human flesh to to live in our broken and sin-scarred world, yet he remained perfectly sinless. He was untouched and he was unstained by sin because he needed to, and he did. He was perfect. And he had to be so that he could bear our sin and he could take our punishment and he could receive our judgment so that we might taste and see that the Lord is good and we might experience the forgiveness of God the Father. And so understanding why Jesus came is what makes our Christmas celebration so meaningful. But his entrance into this world is not the only advent. 
One day he's going to come again, a second advent that will bring fulfillment to all the wonderful promises that we read early on as we began our study in 1 Peter in in chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And that that great mercy is is first in his coming. And he goes on, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And there was a resurrection of Christ from the dead because he had to die. And he died on a cross for our sins that we might be reconciled to God and we might be forgiven. So he, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is what Christ has done for us. But between these two advents... We must live and live as followers of Christ. Now, Peter Peter knows the second advent is coming, but he also knows that until Christ returns, these these believers will will suffer much for following Christ. They'll suffer much for believing in the Savior. So Peter pens this letter to teach and remind these first-century believers how they should live in the face of a hostile world and the suffering they will experience. And in 3, 8 through 12, what we just read, Peter summarizes all he has taught and how they are to follow in Christ's steps, which he he writes in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Following in his steps is what we have been called to. And a part of that following in his steps, because we live in this hostile world, because as Peter has numerous times taught us in his epistle, that we are exiles and we are sojourners, that we don't belong in this world, that our world is, is the one that, that is, is Christ's world. And it's Christ's world, yes, here on earth as we experience it in the life of the church, but it's also a world that one day we will live. A kingdom that we will experience to a fullness that we've never and will never experience here on earth. They are to follow in his steps by looking to Christ's example as the pattern for their own lives as they face this hostility, as they face persecution. Peter's words, though, are not just ones about suffering, but about the mercy and the kindness of God that they will experience when they suffer. Peter Peter writes about hope. That's why he starts with, really, what is a doxology, a praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is what Peter is, is writing to them to say, look, I, I know you are between two worlds, two, two advents, that you are waiting. And, and then that waiting is not easy. It is difficult. And, and you, are, you are in that time to follow in his, in his steps. And, and I'm with you. I'm with you. 
And so Peter, Peter writes about God's kindness that they will experience in the midst of their suffering. And he does this by having them look intently at the finish line of the race that they are running. And, and we see that, as I just read in, in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There, there is the finish line of the race. It's the course that they're running that is so difficult. Last week, like I do every year, I watched the Ironman Triathlon from Kona, Hawaii. It is a grueling race. It is a two and a half mile swim. It is a 112 mile bike ride and a 26.2 mile marathon. The first group off is always the professional triathletes who finish the entire course right around eight hours. They're the, they're, they're the, the premier athletes. They're, they're the ones who are at the top. But then there are the rest who just want to run this race. And this, this group, which is the largest group, and it's a couple of thousand people actually, this group is called the age groupers. <laughs> Basically, anyone crazy enough to qualify for this race and then participate based on their age and put in a group based on their age. I, I did a, you know, I did a, 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 a mini triathlon years ago and I got put in the age group called the Clydesdales, which is basically <laughs> the oldest group possible. Well, for this entire age group, the question isn't how fast they'll go, but if they'll finish it all within the 17-hour time allotted. Because when you hit the 17-hour mark, the race is over. You're not considered an Ironman if you do not finish in that time. Now, what keeps me glued to this race are actually not the professionals. It's the age groupers. Because I'm one of them. Men and women from all walks of life who, who display during the race both the pain and the joy of participating in one of the most challenging physical tests in all the world. And they have one goal in mind. They have one passion that drives them to finish in spite of the pain and the heat, which the heat on the road that they are biking and running on exceeds 100 degrees. They, they keep on going. They face the wind. And most of all, they face their own mental battles by trying to beat the 17-hour time limit. Now, not surprisingly, a good number do not make it. Some simply just stop and sit in the middle of the road exhausted, physically and emotionally spent. But there are others who do not quit. And they make it. And they hear those four magic words, you are an Iron Man, as they cross the finish line. And watching this race inspires me to want to run it every year. And I imagine myself competing and crossing the finish line, hearing those words, and then dying. <laughs> Peter sees a similar race for these first century believers. A grueling, pain-filled, suffering, enduring time that can be filled with discouragement and who, that tempts many to give up because it's much easier to quit. 
than it is to keep going forward. That it's easier to blend in with the culture than to be different from the culture as a follower of Christ. It's easier to compromise than to stand on biblical convictions that will bring you suffering. And so he begins this letter by anchoring them to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of what God has done for them as the foundation for their faith to keep going in this race if they remain firm in their faith. He says in verse 6, in this you rejoice, these trials, though now, or this, this wonderful provision, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, hey, the road is long and the road is hot. And you've got a wind, sometimes upwards to 40, 50 miles an hour in Kona, against the bikers, against the runners. And still they they persevere on. And Peter's saying the same. You, You keep going against these headwinds that you are facing. And so throughout his letter, Peter reminds them, this is what you are called to. This is what every Christian has been called to. And that calling has many facets. In in verse 15 of chapter 1, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You are called to be holy in the midst of this race. In 2.9, he says, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've experienced the joy of salvation. So keep running this race that you may see the completion of this salvation at the day of Christ's revelation to his glory. You have been called, he says, to an even greater suffering in in 2.20 and 21. He says, but if you, when you do good and suffer for it, endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. And now, Peter calls them once again in these verses. The conclusion to Peter's instructions about how to live, how to run this race began in 1.13 where he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he began, here's how you are to, to live in this hostile world. Here's how you are to, to run this race. And, and then he closes with these words in chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, finally, all of you, all of you. And, and he's, he's bringing to conclusion uh, much of what he talked about in chapter 2 and 3 about submission. Finally, all of you, He talked about submitting to governing authorities, whether good or evil. He talked about submitting to masters or employers, whether just or unjust. He talks about 
wives submitting to husbands, whether believers or unbelievers. And he talks to husbands about submitting to the Lord in the way you live with your wife in an understanding way. And now he says, finally, and what he's, what he's bringing to a conclusion is this, submit to suffering. Submit to suffering. And here, here is Here's how you do it. All of you submit to suffering in the same way Jesus did. And when you suffer, here is how you are to live in three places. Here's how you are to live first in in verse 8 in the church. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In the church, a a place in in a world of suffering that we experience, he's saying, listen, here, here is the one place that you will find respite. Here is the one place that you will find encouragement. Here is the one place where you will be supported, where this is the This is what we need. And so Peter uses five adjectives to capture how we are to live with one another because he's talking to all of us. Finally, all of you, every every person here who is a follower of Christ, every member of Grace Church, here is how you are to live. Live with unity or or harmony. Romans 15, 5 says, Paul writes, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Peter anticipates and expects a a unity arising from having us having the mind of Christ. As Paul writes in Philippians 2 and again in Ephesians 4. And he goes on to say, have, have sympathy. Romans, or 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Sympathy is a, is a readiness to enter into the emotions of those around you. Uh, emotions of grief, emotions of joy, emotions of discouragement, emotions of fear. Enter into those emotions that you might walk alongside of those individuals. That's what brings unity. That's what connects us in the church. And we know we have an example of one who is sympathetic towards us. As we read in Hebrews 4, Jesus sympathizes with us. And then Peter repeats what he has said again and again earlier brotherly love brotherly love in 122 he wrote having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart 217 he again speaks of love honor everyone love the brotherhood Jesus in John's gospel is quoted by John as saying, love one another that the world may know you are my disciples. 
And then he, he goes on, hey, this is, this is how we are to live together in the church. Compassion, compassionate and tender-hearted. Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then humble. Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. Arrogance is greatly offensive to the Lord. The writer of Proverbs lists it as one of the seven deadly sins. In, later on in chapter 5, Peter speaks of clothing ourselves with humility. This, my brothers and sisters, this is, these, these five adjectives, doing this, running the race first in this church, this is what makes the, Christ, the Christian community, our church, real and tangible. It's these five virtues that are expressed in our relationships that, that make us who we are. It's having a commitment and a conviction to protect the name of Christ in the way we relate to one another and to protect one another by the way we treat one another, to speak about one another in, in gracious terms and to care for one another. That is how we run the race in the church. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says, okay, okay, good. You've got it down in the church. Now, now let's talk about the rest of your life. <laughs> when you're not here on Sundays or you're not in care group on a, on a weeknight, how do you run this race? And he goes on in verse 9. He says, do not, in the midst of your suffering as you run this race in a hostile world, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This verse directs our attention to how we are to respond to unbelievers who mistreat us. A central theme throughout Peter's letter. Here, Peter expands the call to submission by telling his followers that they are to submit to suffering. This, the submission he describes in the, in, in the previous verses to governments and to, to masters or employers and to husbands sometimes is not always easy. And now he enjoins them. He says, look, submit to suffering for Christ. By not reacting and retaliating and reviling and trading insult for insult. The natural instinct, Peter knows the natural instinct for these, these Christians in, in Asia Minor. And he knows the natural instinct for us is to want to strike back. Is to want to retort back. For those of you old enough to remember the movie and <laughs> You've Got Mail. Meg Ryan is main character in the movie and she's just this kind-hearted person and she never just knows and she's frustrated she never knows how to retort back and trade insult for insult and she she just she laments over her inability to do that until finally one day she does it and at the moment it feels great until 
10 minutes later and she just feels the weight and the guilt of that. And Peter is saying, hey, the same is true for us. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, isn't isn't this the very essence of Christ-like conduct? That they must act contrary to their fallen nature. We must act contrary to our fallen nature. Not only must we refuse to retaliate, but we must take the positive step of blessing those who revile and insult and commit evil against us. Rather than retaliating with harsh and angry words. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary writes, an individual may have enough self-restraint not to resort to active violence, but may yield to less vi- uh, the less violent urge to use insolent and abusive language against another who has injured him. To render railing with railing is to think to wash dirt off with dirt. How many of you have been in a situation where somebody has insulted you and you, you just don't know what to say. You're, you're, you're stunned for a moment and, and you don't know what to say. And then you go home and, oh boy, on the drive home, you come up with every perfect retort. You, you've got it down. And you just want to turn around and drive back and, and just face to face. That's what, that's what Hibbert's talking about. That, that we may walk away and not say a thing, but what's going on in our heart? And he... he Peter is saying, look, look, you're, it's, it's what's going on in your heart. It's not what comes out of your mouth. It's, it's the Christ-like humility and attitude that he's after. Peter tells his readers that it was to this very thing that they are to react to abuse with love and that, that they were called. They were called. Called by God. Called. And called to, to suffer. Is it, is it really possible to suffer like this and not strike back? Well, yes it is because Peter tells us earlier on that Jesus did this. Verse 23 of chapter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words... He wasn't looking at them. He was looking at God. Rather than retaliate, they are to ask Jesus to show his favor and grace upon those who have hurt them. When they bless, Peter says, they will inherit. They will inherit a blessing. These first century believers, he's telling them, he says, listen, you will inherit a blessing, not to earn your salvation, but to prove the genuineness of your faith. Christ-like behavior proves their salvation and it marks it as genuine. God's calling to bless on those who mistreat us, them, seems illogical and it is contrary to our nature. Who doesn't want to get even? Well, Peter says right here, the best way to get even is to bless them. That's how you get even. And in his suffering, Jesus entrusted his life to his Father. 
rather than strike back. And we are called to do the same. Edmund Clowney in his commentary said, Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. But they are also free to bless because they know God's goodness. It is not only in the world that Christians must repay evil with good. They must do it in the church as well. (laughs) Because sometimes even Christians can insult and revile and hurt. It just isn't out there, but it's in here as well. Listen, we, we bless not because we will be blessed, but because we have been blessed by the salvation we have been given in Christ. Listen, remember, we were hostile to Jesus. We were his enemies. We reviled him. We insulted him. We struck him. And what was his response? Compassion, mercy, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Peter, Peter says, when you run this race, when you run it in the church, these five virtues. When you run it in the world, bless and do not pay back evil for evil. And then thirdly, Peter says, when you run this race, this is the most important point. Remember that you are running it before the face of of God. You are running it before the face of God. And, and Peter here quotes from Psalm 34, something he actually did earlier in chapter 2, verse 3, where he's talking about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. He uses this psalm to encourage them, to inspire them in their their running of this race through this hostile world as they suffer for following Christ. In, in 310, David in, in Psalm, 30, he, he quotes Psalm 34, verses uh, 12 through six, uh, 10 through 12, he, he says, or sorry, 12 through 16, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The righteous display their trust and hope in the Lord by renouncing evil and pursuing what is good. Now, the good days that Peter refers to in, in 310, and, and they're, they're, they're good days that, that primarily look back to chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, those, those future days, those, those future days that, that we will be in the presence of God. The internal inheritance that awaits us. But, but it's also about good days here on earth. Yes, we will have some good days here on earth, even in the face of sin and suffering in a fallen and broken world. But these days will never be as good as they can be. Ever. And, and Peter is not promising that all the days on earth will be good all the time. In fact, he knows they won't be. What he's doing is he's providing motivation. He's providing encouragement to, to Christians of every age to, to look to look to what is eternal and to entrust their souls to God and to bless those who persecute them. This psalm was written when David was under great stress and, and great danger. It was the season of his life where he'd been anointed by Samuel and he had been anointed as king. Saul had been 
been removed as king, but Saul didn't let himself be removed. And he kept pursuing David, trying to kill David. And this went on for years. David was a fugitive. He was an exile in his own land. And he had a man pursuing him to kill him. And David, David writes this psalm at that time. And he begins this psalm with these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's the beginning of Psalm 34 in the midst of David's greatest trial under the most unfair circumstances and the endurance that he has to suffer under Saul's desire to to kill him. And David entrusts himself to God. And eventually he sees God's reward. And that is what Peter wants these first century Christians to see in Psalm 34. It's what he wants us to see. Edmund Clowney said this, Peter cites the psalm to describe the blessing of life to which Christians are called. Those who practice love of compassion, refrain from speaking evil and pursue peace are blessed by the Lord. His eyes are on them. He hears their prayer. The blessing that they inherit reaches to eternal life, but it also fills this life with good days. Peter affirms this, although he knows that days of suffering will come. Yet the blessing of the Lord will make the days of suffering good days in his favor. A good day in a television beer commercial pictures friends imbibing in the sunset at the fishing lodge. It doesn't get any better than this, they say. A good day in the book of Acts shows Paul and Silas in a Greek prison, their backs bleeding and their feet in stocks. They are singing psalms at midnight, perhaps Psalm 34. Silas, now sitting beside Peter, would remember with him the word of Jesus. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Peter's encouraging these people believers and us keep running keep running it's it's not your it's not your life it's his and and what you lose in this life by being a follower of Christ oh you gain so much more in the life to come now to love to love life here does not mean to love hoping for a trouble-free life. And and Peter and David both realize that because many are the afflictions of the righteous. Actually, David writes further in Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But it, it it does encourage us, it suggests to us a contentment in life, trusting that God will deliver us out of all our trials. God will deliver these believers out of all their trials. But but Peter makes it clear, hey There are requirements. Look look at these requirements. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, requirement number one, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep his tongue from evil. In James 3.8, James writes, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. (laughs) Yeah, that's the tongue. That's the tongue. And that's, that's what we're no longer enslaved to that kind of tongue, having been transformed by the grace of God through the death of Christ. 
We don't have to speak evil. We don't have to repay evil for evil. We can keep our tongue from evil. And we can keep our lips, the second requirement, from deceit, from lying. So you want to see good days? You want to love this life? You want to see the blessings of God even in the midst of submitting to a hostile world, suffering in a hostile world? Hey, watch how you speak. Then Peter, in verse 11, presses them even harder. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Turn away from evil. And, and Peter, this is a, a, a refrain in, in, in Peter's letter where he is talking to us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So turn from the evil that, that stands before you, that tempts you. Brothers and sisters, you want to run this race? Do you want to finish this race? Watch what you say. Watch what you do, Peter says. And then he he explains the motivation for this in verse 12. God is watching. I, I think these are some of the most encouraging words in all of the Bible. God is watching. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And God is listening. And his ears are open to their prayer. God, God's face, his countenance is watching over you. Numbers Numbers 6, 24 through 26, which is actually our benediction for the day. It's, the, it's Aaron's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up, his, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God is watching over you. There is not a moment of your day, not one moment, not one second, not one millisecond, not one moment of your day that God is not present with you. That he is not watching over you and not attentive to your prayers or to even the thoughts and intentions of your heart. God is there. That is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is watching over you. It's because he loves you and he cares for you. And he wants to sustain you that you might run this race, that you will have the endurance to finish this race and not fall down in the middle of the road, exhausted, mentally just destroyed, saying, I can't go on. No. God, God is watching over you. Nothing, nothing escapes his notice. Every act of kindness is remembered His ears are attentive to your prayers. He listens. He awaits your prayers. One commentator said that that the, the, the description behind this is though God is bending down to hear you speak. He awaits your prayers. 
And consider this. Have you ever thought of prayerlessness as leaving God waiting at the place of prayer? He's there and you're not. His ears are attentive. But sometimes our voices are silent. How comforting to know that God's eyes are on us and His ears are attuned to us and that He looks on great favor upon us. But there's a serious and frightening reality as well for those who pursue evil rather than good because God watches over the evil as well. The end of verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. They do not have God as their friend, but as their adversary. Peter is writing, listen, you turn from God or you reject the gospel, you reject God, he is your enemy. He is your adversary. His face is against you because you do evil. To reject God's goodness and forgiveness is to experience it, the terrifying reality of being rejected by him. And so, to those of you who do not know the Lord, who have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is a sobering and frightening truth. But in the kindness and mercy of God, you are here today hearing the good news of the gospel that God will transform you. God will forgive you. God will be reconciled to you because Christ will have taken your judgment if you put your trust in him. Now, what is our application from this passage? How can we be faithful to these verses having been transformed by the gospel in our lives? Sinners who are now saints in God's eyes. Well, verse, verse 8, the first question is, how do you live among the members of Grace Church? Is there an adjective in this list that you struggle with? How, how do you... How do you How do you love? Are you sympathetic? Are you in unity and harmony with others? Are you being tender-hearted and humble? Are you forgiving? And if you are if you are carrying an offense this morning towards anyone, I'm not just appealing to you, I'm admonishing you. Go and make it right. And then verse 9, what is your attitude towards unbelievers? Do you bless them? Or do you silently curse them in your heart? Do you, do you take joy, in a sense, when you see the demise of unbelievers? God doesn't. Nor should we. And then verses 10 and 11, do you keep your tongue from evil? Do you gossip? Do you slander? Do you, do you practice deceit and lying, false accusations? Do you listen to gossip and slander? 
Proverbs makes it clear that listening to gossip and slander is as evil as gossiping and slandering. And do you turn away from evil? As the temptation it lies before you, what do you do? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God has made a way of escape for us. And no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, that God will not provide a way of escape. And do you pursue peace? Th those are the questions you must answer this morning from this passage. But, but let me encourage you with this. God is faithful. God, God's grace is with you. And God's power is with you to, to live as you are called to live in the midst of suffering, to run this race and to finish this race. Let us run with endurance, the writer of Hebrews says. The race set before us because we have the author and finisher of our faith right there with us, watching over us and attentive to our prayers. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are attentive to our prayers that you never have left us nor forsaken us. And so, Lord, help us this morning, we pray. Help us to run this race with endurance. Help us to, to reach the finish line and not hear, you are an Iron Man, but to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. All to the end that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.